to you, John. Thanks. Great. Well, thank you very much indeed. It's a real privilege for me to be here and have this chance to, to speak to a group of evangelists. It's the first time I've given quite a few talks, but never to a group of evangelists. And what a fantastic privilege that is. And uh, one of the things that I have discovered is that Although my main focus has been talking about medical ethics, surprisingly, sometimes people have found faith uh, through this route. And, and, and sometimes it seems as though these issues come from left field. You know, it may be that your approach tends to be the more full frontal approach. Uh, my approach is often coming in from very left field, and yet it still raises the fundamental issues of what it means to be human, uh, and what it, how valuable is life? What is the meaning and purpose of life? So there are many different opportunities for, um, uh, for uh, being a witness in our society. And one of the things I love is using these kind of uh, issues about medical ethics as a way in for the gospel and as a way in perhaps to get people uh, who wouldn't be interested in a, no a normal talk about, you know, is there life after death and... Is, is there evidence for, that God exists, but are much more interested in coming to a talk about embryos and genetic editing and artificial intelligence and, and so on. And yet, we can use that as a way in for the gospel. So, I've spent most of my life working in a big intensive care unit for babies in the centre of London at UCH and caring for newborn babies who needed intensive care after birth. And uh, some of them born at the, at the right time, uh, weighing three or four kilograms, but some of them going right down to the very limits of viability, which is at about 23, 22 weeks out of the normal 40 weeks of a pregnancy. And babies at that stage literally weighing um, 500 grams and, and fitting in the palm of my hand. And um, we invest a lot of resources in keeping babies like that alive. It's a very technologically sophisticated kind of medicine. And uh, we invest a lot of money, a lot of time and effort. It costs £1,500 per baby per day to provide the care for an extremely premature baby. And the total cost of ensuring that an extremely premature baby survives could be as much as £100,000, all paid for by the NHS, all free at the point of need. Um, and clearly society is saying that these lives are precious, that they matter. That's actually my hand and one of the babies on the baby unit, just to give you an idea of scale. But as technology advances, it raises all kinds of difficult questions. These are MRI scans of a very premature baby showing bleeding in the center of the brain. And when we know that there's damage in the brain, that raises um, all kinds of questions. Is it ever right to switch off a life support machinery? And if so, how do we make those terribly difficult decisions and who is responsible to take those decisions? And so these are some of the issues which I found myself pitchforked into and, and wrestling with and, and trying to work out how, as a Christian believer, I could try to stand up for principles of the value of life while still recognizing that there's a time to say enough is enough and that we can't keep everybody alive indefinitely. But just one floor away, in the same hospital where we devote all this energy to saving the lives of, of very vulnerable babies, is another area called the Fetal Medicine Unit. And here, uh, pregnant ladies from a wide area of London, the southeast, are referred, particularly if an abnormality of the unborn baby is detected. 
and sophisticated technology, ultrasound as here. Uh, this is amniocentesis when fluid is taken from around the, the baby and analyzed. And a lot of tests are done, including looking at the chromosomes. And these are the chromosomes from an unborn baby. We know that she's a little girl, because if you look here on the right bottom, there are two X chromosomes. But there's an additional chromosome here, an additional 21 chromosomes. So that means that this baby is going to develop Down syndrome. We can't tell from the chromosomes how severe it is or what the consequences will be. It could be very severe and life-threatening. It could be relatively mild. But we know that she's going to be affected in some way. But in the UK, every time this diagnosis is made before birth, the mother will be offered the option of an abortion. And uh, the st current statistics in the UK are that 90% of women choose to have an abortion uh, following a diagnosis of Down syndrome. And what's equally troubling to that is that because the amniocentesis procedure itself has a risk of causing a miscarriage, um, you can calculate that for every baby who is diagnosed with Down syndrome, there's a risk that another healthy baby will die just because of the testing procedure. And the way that our law works is that it's legal for abortions to be carried out for medical reasons at any stage in the pregnancy, all the way up until term. Most people are completely unaware of this, but that is the truth. For so-called social abortions, which are the common kind of abortions, the limit is 24 weeks. But for medical abortions, because of an underlying abnormality, it's legal for abortions to be carried out at any stage of the pregnancy. In my own hospital, UCH, abortions, or what are called late feticides, are carried out on a regular basis at 26 weeks, 28 weeks, 30 weeks, even 32 weeks and beyond. And many times in my medical career, I've been asked to go one floor up from the neonatal unit to the fetal medicine unit to talk to a mother who's considering having an abortion because of an abnormality of the baby, and she's asked to speak to a pediatrician. And the baby in her womb is considerably bigger and tougher and stronger than some of the babies that we're struggling to save one floor down. And then you ask yourself, how is it possible in one hospital for these apparently completely contradictory activities to be going on? And that's a very challenging and difficult situation to be in, as you can imagine and trying to get your head around what's going on in here. But it reflects the fact that in our society, it's what philosophers call a pluralistic society. It's a society in which there are many competing different ideas about what is the value of life, about what is the real significance of the unborn baby. And the NHS is trying to cope with these competing and different ideas about the value of life and that's partly the reason why you end up with these bizarre contradictory things where it seems like half the world is desperately trying to have babies and half the world is desperately trying to get rid of babies. So these are very troubling areas but you know whenever we talk about these issues particularly as Christian people we need to remember that there is real human pain involved here. These are not just philosophical uh, debates or challenges about ethics. These are real people who struggle and bleed and agonize and worry. And I've come to the conclusion that every medical ethical dilemma pretty well starts with human pain. 
And I think that sometimes, although I understand why people you know, want to use very sort of harsh rhetoric about issues like abortion, I think that sometimes that, that harsh rhetoric can, can actually cause damage because it's like twisting a knife in, in people's hearts. So yes, we need to be honest and truthful about these issues, but we need to speak about these issues with tenderness, with care, with sensitivity. If you like, I think we should talk about these issues with tears in our eyes, not with judgment and rhetoric in our voices. But the second thing we must always remember when we talk about these things, that these are not issues, just issues out there in society as a whole. No, these are issues in this room. I don't know anything about virtually all of you, but I can guarantee that there are people sitting here who will have been personally touched by some of the ethical issues I'm going to talk about. Um, the statistics say that one in three people will have a, an abortion in their lifetime, women, and for every woman that's involved, there's a man. Now, I would like to tell you that it's totally different within the church, but actually all the evidence is that it isn't. And that the same statistics apply virtually within, within the church. I've given many of these talks in, uh, about abortion and other things in, in many churches around the country. And there's a, there's a particular scenario which sticks in my mind, which has happened so many times. And that is there's an elderly lady who's hung around at the end of the talk. And she wants to come and talk to me privately. And she's waited until everyone else has gone. And then she comes. And I know what she's going to say. And she's going to tell me that she had an abortion 50 years ago. And it's haunted her ever since and she's never spoken to anyone about it and she's never been able to be and I'm the first person she's actually talked about something that's been haunting her for 50 years and there, you know, there are many people like that in our churches and, and therefore that's why we always need to remember that we're not just talking about issues out there, we're talking about issues in here it's the same with issues about infertility uh, one in six, one in seven couples of, uh, will have infertility and will not be able to have children without help Many people who know they have genetic disorders, uh, things like Alzheimer's disease, uh, suicidal thoughts, uh, many of these things are common in God's people. And therefore, whenever we talk about them, we need to be aware of that and, and to, to, to show the sensitivity to, because these are issues that affect all of us. As you, going back to the issue about Down syndrome, as you know, that there's been a campaign to try and... Um, by people with Down syndrome and their uh, supporters to say don't screen us out because there's a nationwide program uh, which is devoted to trying to detect um, unborn babies with genetic disorders uh, so that the mothers can be offered abortion. And it's interesting to see how the rhetoric about abortion has changed. The Abortion Act is just over 50 years ago when it first came in in the UK. And when it first came in, it was clear that the parliamentarians thought that abortion would be something just for extreme circumstances. And the major argument that was used was, not, was based on compassion. We should have compassion on the pregnant woman in these desperate circumstances. But then with the rise of feminism and women's lib, the whole argument changed. And now it's not an argument primarily about compassion. But now it's about... Uh, abortion should be available on demand or on request and the arguments based around liberation 
And many of those arguments are still around today, but it's interesting it's changing again, that often the arguments these days is around responsibility. You know, it's irresponsible to bring a child into the world that might be unwanted. It's irresponsible if you're not going to be able to give the child the very best possible care, if you're a single mother, if you're not in ideal circumstances. And therefore, the the responsible thing, the duty, is to have an abortion. The statistics which are freely available on the internet from the government, um, these are the most up-to-date statistics we have. Compare this with about 700,000 live births a year. So about one in four, between one in four and one in five of all pregnancies in the UK will will end in the death of the baby due to abortion. In fact, it has been said that the womb is the most dangerous place for a child in our society. It's a far more dangerous place than anything that happens after uh, because of the risk of abortion. The vast majority of abortions are funded by the NHS, although the majority of them now actually take place in private clinics. One of the real problems is that whereas previously you had to go and see a GP or a doctor to be referred... And so there was a sort of gatekeeping role where people could say, are you sure about this? Now, in order to make the process as simple as possible, you simply can, anybody can ring a number and go direct to the abortion clinic without, and can refer themselves. They don't need to have any medical involvement at all, except actually at the clinic. The numbers of abortions that are done of the the more mature abortions is relatively small, although as a, 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 245 over 24 weeks, and about 1.5% are because of a risk of disability. So the vast majority of abortions are done when the baby is completely healthy and simply because, for social reasons, the baby is unwanted. And effectively, the way the law works is that abortion on demand is available for anybody up to 24 weeks. There is a campaign going on at the moment called We Trust Women, And the idea is to completely decriminalise abortion. In other words, to take all legal sanctions away and to allow women to obtain abortions uh, completely freely. That means they would be able, for instance, to get abortion drugs from the internet. They would be able to take the drugs in home. And um, all this is being promoted, although it sounds absolutely barbaric. And, and you know, as we, I was actually at a conference over the weekend where we were discussing some of the implications of this. And uh, if this goes through, as, as there is a, certainly a risk it might go through, um, the, the consequences are potentially fairly barbaric because the idea of people having abortions in their homes, passing a fetus into the toilet, completely unsupported, without any kind of at least... If it's happening in a medical context, there are people around to support and so on. But all this is being promoted because it's all about women's freedom to do whatever they like with their bodies. And uh, within that, the idea that the unborn baby has no value or status. Uh, the moment it's born, it all changes. Uh, but as long as the, uh, the baby's inside, then the argument goes that this being has no real value or status. And it's interesting to see the different arguments that are used um, in favour of abortion in our society. The the principal one is is so-called autonomy, my right to choose. Autonomy literally means autonomos, I make my own rules. And and that's a very, very 
significant thing, isn't it, in, in the whole biblical context, that, that above all, here is the most profound which, uh, cry, which really goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, Auto nomos, I am the master of my own life. I make my own rules. There's situation ethics. Uh, the only thing that matters is love. I'm loving my baby. I've even heard people say, I'm loving my baby. I love my baby so much I had to kill him. And, and because love is the answer for everything. There's the idea that here's a technological fix. You know, the very, very complex issues to do with unplanned pregnancy and lack of social support and so on. But we've got a technological solution. It's just it's a very simple thing. Give the drug, have a simple procedure, problem solved. Um, and as we've already talked about, the responsible choice, the duty to have an abortion. So if you think all that is difficult, it's actually about to get worse because of advances in technology, particularly the ability to detect abnormalities of the unborn baby before birth. It turns out that during pregnancy, the unborn baby, uh, the, the pregnant mother, in her circulation, there are small amounts of the fetal DNA, the genetic material. And that's just a normal biological phenomenon. But it's now possible to do a simple blood test in the mother, extract the DNA out, and, and therefore analyze the genetic code of the baby. At the moment, this is still a research project, but it's about to be introduced into the NHS as a screening program, particularly for Down syndrome. And some people are, are worried that this will mean that it's now much simpler to get, to get a diagnosis of Down syndrome and to get it much earlier in the pregnancy and that that will lead to even higher rates of Down syndrome babies being aborted. Uh, but it also turns out that it's actually possible to get your entire fetal DNA sequence just from a blood test in the mother. So imagine five or ten years hence, and you or your daughter or your wife is pregnant, and you're very happy about it, and you go to the clinic, and they say, we'd just like to do a blood test, check the baby's all right. And two weeks later you go back and they say, well, you're having a little girl, congratulations, but unfortunately the DNA shows that there's a 60-70% to chance she's going to get breast or ovarian cancer before the age of 50. She's got an increased risk of type 2 diabetes and we're also worried about early onset Alzheimer's disease. Now, do you think it would be responsible for you to bring this baby into the world? Or do you think it would be better to have an abortion and have a, a try for a healthier child? And so you can just see the sort of problems and issues and challenges which just ordinary people who've never thought about anything like this are going to have to struggle with because of this, the powerful technology that can look us, look into the future. And, um, as somebody has said, it's almost like God, we, the, this technology brings God-like knowledge. Who would have thought that you'd be able to predict how somebody was going to die in 50 years' time? But godlike knowledge leads to godlike responsibility. And, and how do we cope with that responsibility? I think actually it's a very strong Christian option to say actually we don't want the tests. We, we don't need to have genetic testing before birth. And I think in the way that God has made us and the way he, uh, in the creation order, you meet your newborn baby effectively as a little stranger. You don't know much about them at all, but you fall in love with them because they're such a lovely, cuddly little baby. 
And then as a parent, over the next 18 years, you discover all the revolting and unpleasant genetic characteristics <laughs> about your child. But it's too late because you've fallen in love with them. Whereas what happens if you do genetic testing before birth is it turns it on its head. You learn about your child before you've met them. And I think actually that's not the way it was meant to be. We're supposed to meet our child first and then we discover about them. So those are just some of the issues about taking your life at the beginning of life. And at the end of life, this issue of euthanasia is still very much current. The guy on the right in the white shirt was a businessman called Jeff Spector. He had an uh, abnormality of the spine. A tumor was growing on his spine. And the doctors had told him that it was inoperable and that although at the moment he was quite relatively healthy, he was going to become paralyzed within the next year or two and would need a wheelchair. And Jeff Spector, who was in his 50s, said, no way, Jose, that's not what's going to happen to me. And uh, he called all his friends and family together and they had a big celebration meal. And this is the picture of the celebration meal. And at the meal, he told them that the following morning he was booked to go to the Dignitas Clinic in Switzerland and he was going to go and kill himself. And um, they tried to remonstrate with him and so on, but that's what happened. And, uh, and the publicity said, you know, what a noble way to die. You know, what a, he didn't want to be a burden to other people. He didn't want to be disabled. And uh, it's interesting how there's a sort of steady drip by drip that suicide is being rehabilitated as a noble and an honorable way to die. Uh, it's very interesting if you go back into the pre-Christian era, suicide was always seen in many pagan cultures as a very noble and honorable way to die. It was the death of a hero, the death of a warrior. Um, but in, in the Bible and in all um, cultures which have been influenced by Christianity, suicide is never celebrated as a noble or honorable way to die. Think of Judas Iscariot or King Saul. Uh, these Suicide here is an example of despair and hopelessness. Um, but it's, and so all cultures which have been influenced by Christianity have always tried to suppress suicide, have tried to argue against it, to say this is not a good way for people to die. So we should not be surprised that as the Christian influence in our society declines, suicide is coming back as a noble way to die, as an honourable way to die. Of course, suicidal thoughts are quite common in God's people. You see a lot of that in the Bible, don't you? Elijah says, it's enough, Lord, take my life. But instead, God sends him on a sabbatical. And uh, Job curses the day he was born, Jeremiah again. Several. So suicidal thoughts are actually quite common in God's people. I have to be honest and say, I went through a period of intense depression some years ago and I was thinking actually it would be much better for everybody if if I could end my life but thank God I wasn't someone didn't come along with a form and say well just sign here we can arrange it for you but instead I was met with love and compassion and healing so suicidal thoughts are actually quite common in God's people but suicide itself is never seen as an honorable or a godly way to die Here's another example of a tragic suicide. This was Daniel James, who was a very promising young rugby player. 
um, and he um, played for the junior England team. Then he was involved in a horrible rugby accident, fractured his cervical spine, paralyzed from the shoulders downwards. Uh, he became deeply depressed. He was a very sporty, active young guy. His parents tried to chivvy him along. They bought him equipment and so on. And then he said to them, if you really love me, you'll help me to kill myself. And eventually they were persuaded and they took him on the uh, trip to Switzerland and he was killed with the lethal drugs. And it was again interesting that the newspaper headlines, by and large, were very supportive of his parents. What noble people they were, they didn't put their own selfish demands first. They, they put their child first. They wanted to do the best for their child. So again, this, this trend of, um, of backing um, suicide. And in fact, why on earth did he have to go to Switzerland? Why can't we have the law here so that he could commit suicide with medical help here? And as we're aware, it almost seems like there's a plague of medical killing which is slowly spreading across the world. I'm glad to say that at the moment, UK is standing out against it, but there's constant pressure to legalise some form of mercy killing. Um, in Holland, euthanasia for cancer is completely routine. It isn't regarded as at all uh, unusual. Uh, the debate in Holland is about euthanasia for things like uh, psychiatric disease such as schizophrenia or even anorexia nervosa. Um, it's for dementia, people with dementia, and then for old people who are, quote, tired of life. So there's a lot of pressure on doctors in Holland to make um, various kinds of killing available just for people who say, I've had my life, I want to die, I'm suffering with life. And also, as you see here, children, it's been extended towards children, and unfortunately, this is also spreading across the states. California was the last state to approve medically assisted suicide. Um, Canada has now legalized euthanasia, and it's amazing the speed with which uh, this has gone from being something completely illegal to being is now part, a routine part of the medical care available in Canada. Behind all this, there's a lot of concern about dementia. And dementia has replaced cancer as the kind of death which people most fear. So whereas before cancer was the number one fear, now it's dementia that people fear, including many Christians. And the statistics are really quite alarming. The, this just shows it numerically. On the left, 800,000 people in the UK with dementia, 2012, a million 2021, 1.7 million 2051. The reason for that is that dementia is an age-related disease, so the older people get, the more the instance uh, of dementia is going to be. And again, the question comes, well, how are we going to survive as a society with, with vast numbers of people with dementia? Who's going to care for them? How are we going to cope? And the, and the question comes, well, perhaps euthanasia is going to be a solution. And this is Mary Warnock, a very well-known philosopher, who said, if you're demented, you're wasting people's lives your family's lives, and you're wasting the resources of the National Health Service. I'm absolutely fully in agreement with the argument that if pain is insufferable, then someone should be given help to die. But I feel there's a wider argument. If somebody absolutely desperately wants to die because they're a burden to their family or to the state, then I think they too should be allowed to die. 
And when she said those words, there was a lot of pushback and people said, um, you know, this is appalling, we don't agree with this. But actually she was just voicing what many people think, but just keep quiet, that perhaps euthanasia is the best solution. Behind all this is a question of what does it mean to die well and to die faithfully? And I think this is a really important question for Christians. If you ask people how they would like to die, the most common answer that people will give is, I want to die in my sleep. I don't want any kind of warning. I don't want any kind of premonition. I don't want any kind of awareness. I just want to go out like a light. Wouldn't that be a wonderful way to die? Well, it's very interesting, you know, if you were to go back three or four hundred years and you were to ask Christians how they would like to die, it was generally agreed that sudden unexpected death was the worst possible way to die. To be catapulted into eternity with no possibility to prepare yourself to meet your maker. No possibility to to say your last words. No possibility to ask forgiveness where you've caused hurt. No possibility to be reconciled where there are broken relationships. And there's actually a collect in the prayer book in the the Church of England specifically against sudden death. Because it's such an evil thing. So isn't it interesting that now we've done that vault fast and now it seems to be the most wonderful way to die. I'm afraid it reflects the narcissism of our age because actually all we're caring about is what we might experience. We're not thinking about anybody else or what the implications of our sudden death might be. Uh, We're just totally preoccupied with our own experiences. The reality is that actually not very many people do die like that in their bed completely without warning. The majority of people die in hospital And many people die in one of these two cases, both of which are a pretty horrible way to die. The one on the left is cardiopulmonary resuscitation, having people jumping up and down on your chest, giving you electric shocks. Many people die in failed CPR. Um, And the one on the right is death in an intensive care unit, surrounded by machines, anonymous professionals, and um, abandoned by human contact. And... And yet many uh, uh, people end up like that. And one of the bizarre things is there's evidence that people who are religious people, particularly in the States, are more likely to end up dying in an intensive care unit. They're more likely to insist on having futile treatment at the end of the life. They're less likely to have a do not resuscitate order and they're less likely to nominate someone to be make decisions on their behalf. And when the researchers who published this evidence and they said, this is rather strange, this is not what we expected. So they asked people, why was that? And the two major reasons were, one, well, you've got to have every possible treatment because if you don't have it, then that's like euthanasia and that's wrong. And the second one was, I'm trusting and praying that God is going to heal me and do a miracle, but I've got to give God God the very best chance of doing a miracle. (laughs) So that means if I don't get admitted to the intensive care, then I'm not exercising faith. So I think you can see there's quite a lot of issues here about what does it mean to die well and what does it mean to say enough is enough. I like this. There was a funeral director in the States who said the most common Bible verse that families put on funeral announcements or read at services, I have fought the good fight. Except they're not talking about spiritual things. They mean this person tried every medical option to stay alive. (laughs) Isn't that terrible? (laughs) 
So those are the issues about the taking of human life. But as I've said before, there's also, and very just briefly, these new ethical challenges about making, shaping, and faking of human life. The reproductive technology, uh, smart drugs, enhancement, um, and even AI and robotics. I haven't time to go into this in any detail, but there's going to be a a bit of chance for Q&A. So I'll be very happy to talk about some of these issues if you'd like me to. Um, But just very briefly, reproductive technology is changing the way we think of parenthood. When I was a medical student back in the 1970s, I remember I went to a lecture on human reproduction. I thought this was very interesting, so I took along a notebook. And what I learned back in the 1970s was that the way you made babies was that two people had sex, and nine months later, out popped a baby. So I wrote it all down in my notebook very carefully. But uh, these days, if you go to a lecture on human reproduction, it's slightly different. What you discover is you need to have a source of eggs, You need to have a source of sperm. You need to have a uterus or a womb. And you need to have somebody who's going to look after the baby after it's produced. So it's perfectly possible for one person to have three mothers. And the different combinations are almost endless. And, of course, this is leading to all kinds of spectacular and confusing things. So here is Sir Elton John and his male partner with their two children produced through surrogate Mothers, and bizarrely, there was a case where a daughter was dying quite young of cancer, and before she died, she asked that her eggs be harvested, and that her mother, her own mother, that the eggs should be implanted, fertilized, and implanted in her own mother, and that's in fact what happened. So that this mother became pregnant, and she was at one and the same time both the mother and the grandmother of the baby's she was carrying. So again, you can just see the sort of confusions that were created. And and this is a picture of a biological female who decided to transition to become male, so took male hormones, but retained a womb. And she then had a relationship with a biological female and using another source of sperm, she became, she stroke, he became pregnant and she describes herself as a pregnant father. And so again, you just see the sort of confusions that the technology causes. And some people are, think that actually IVF and test tube babies is going to be the main way to have babies in the future. You know, that old sort of sexual intercourse stuff, it's so 20th century, you know, messy, you know, unpredictable. You know, the, the modern way to have babies is in test tubes because that way we can control and select the right DNA. Um, the possibility of modifying human embryos genetically, modifying or editing is now something that's already happened. It's happened in China uh, for human embryo. And uh, again, the possibility of so-called designer babies is now becoming a reality. So you can see there's a kind of potent combination here. Consumerism says, I want. And relativism says, well, why not? What's wrong with it? And then technology says, we can satisfy your desires. We can make it happen, but it's going to cost you. So C.S. Lewis said that man's power over nature turns out to be power exerted by some men over other men. So often it's about the power structures. Who is exerting power here? Who's in control? I'm going to just... Uh, just very briefly talk about AI. So three of these beings are homo sapiens and three of these beings are robots. And actually you can go on to a YouTube video and you can see all six of them around a table. 
and having a conversation. And as the camera goes round, it's very hard to work out who's human and who is artificial. And there are there's a whole push to have humanoid robots and make these our companions. Uh, there's a sex robots and many many different issues all of coming up about this desire to uh, simulate and uh, make artificial human beings. So historically these three kinds of beings were quite separate. There were animals, there were human beings who were unique, made in God's image and then there were machines, the things that human beings made. What's happening is that the boundaries between the difference between the animal and the human is blurring and the difference between the human and the machine is blurring. And so we're left with this question of what does it really mean to be human? Uh, are we just machines made out of meat, as some people say? Are we just animals with a bit of extra brain? So just responding now very briefly, and then I'll stop and there'll be time for, for Q&A. How do we think about some of these incredibly challenging issues? Well, I don't have any simple or easy answers. In fact, I don't think there are any simple answers. But one of the things that it tells me that we really need to engage with is a, a deeper creation theology. Because Christian ethics, the way we're called to treat one another, comes from Christian anthropology, the way we are made. And so understanding in greater depth the way that God has made us as human beings is at the heart of how we should respond to some of these challenges. And in Christian thinking, human beings are not self-explanatory. Because we're made in God's image, we are derivative. We reflect his own, uh, our meaning comes from outside ourselves. We reflect the being and the character of God himself. So yes, we're made in God's image. We have unique value, but we're also made out of dust. And I think it's really important for us to remember this biblical idea as well, that we're made out of the same stuff as everything else. And because we're made out of dust, that means that we are designed to be weak and fragile and vulnerable and dependent, and to use a philosophical term, contingent. And notice that this is nothing to do with the fall. Our creation from dust happens before the fall. This is God's plan. Presumably, he could have chosen to make us glorious and powerful and dynamic beings like the cherubim, the seraphim. But instead, in his wisdom, he chose to make us these amazingly pathetic and fragile and vulnerable and dependent beings. And... Why did he do that? Well, it's a very good question, but I think we get lots of hints, don't we, in Scripture, that the reason is in order that his glory, his power, his truth would be revealed in our weakness. And that was his plan. And so dependence is part of the plan. You came into this world utterly and totally dependent on the love and care of other people. The very fact that you're sitting there on that seat looking reasonably together tells me that when you were born, somebody loved you. Somebody kept you warm. Somebody fed you. Somebody wiped your bottom. You could do absolutely nothing for yourself. Then we go through this phase in our life when we care for other people. Other people become dependent on us. And uh, that phase of life seems to go on for an awful long time. I mean, my wife and I, we've got three grown-up boys. And you think, oh, thank goodness, they've left. You know, off they go. And then the phone rings. Dad, Dad. 
Can you put a thousand pounds in my account? Dad. <laughs> Dad, can I borrow the car for a month? You know. <laughs> So this period when other people depend on us seems to go on for an awful long time. But you know, most of us are going to end our lives utterly and totally dependent on the love and care of others. And other people are going to feed us and other people are going to care for us. And I remember this very vividly when my lovely mother, who was a lovely vivacious Christian lady, was struck down by a horrible kind of dementia. And before our eyes she was transformed and became dependent. And ultimately, she was locked inside this body. She was uh, having 24-hour nursing care. She could do nothing for herself. And I was visiting her in the nursing home, and somebody thrust a yogurt pot and a teaspoon into my hand. And I was saying, open your mouth, open your mouth, here it comes, open your mouth. And then I suddenly had a flashback. This was precisely what she used to do for me. But now the tables were turned. And I remember thinking very vividly at the time, you know, This is the way it was meant to be. I was learning more of what it meant to be a son and she was learning more of what it meant to be a mother because dependence is part of the story. Dependence is part of the narrative of a human life. And I hear a lot of older people, including Christian old people, say something like, I just don't want to be a burden to anybody. I'm very happy to care for others. I'm very happy to look after others. Perhaps there's some people here and you said, I just don't want to be a burden. Well, you know, if you ever hear somebody say that to you or you are tempted to to say it to yourself, you must immediately say, you are wrong. I am designed to be a burden to you and you are designed to be a burden to me. And the life that God has given us is one of mutual burdensomeness. That's the way God planned it. That's the way God wanted it to be. And that's why Paul says, bear one another's burdens. And so you will fulfill the law of Christ. So dependence is not an alien, subhuman, undignified condition. It's part of the narrative of every human life. I often show this picture when I'm teaching medical students. So up on the left here, this is what you look like when you were born. This is what you look like at 28 weeks. This is what you look like at 18 weeks, 6 weeks, 3 weeks, 3 days. That's exactly what you look like. And yet what Psalm 139 tells us is that God saw you and knew you and loved you and was calling you to existence, even as at that very early stage. And as you go back in your own history, there's no point at which you can say, that is not me. That's That's what you look like when your father saw you and was calling you into existence. But then the most amazing and wonderful thing happens because God himself enters into the picture. He doesn't just say, well, I've made you like these pathetic beings made out of dust, you know, and you're going to be dependent and fragile and vulnerable. Good luck with that. It's going to be hard. You know, all the best, all the best. I'm, you know, I'm rooting for you. No, the God of the universe chooses to turn himself into a pathetic, vulnerable carbon-based life form and he can do nothing for himself and the God of the universe needs to be washed and the God of the universe needs to be fed and to have his bottom wiped and even at that very moment of utter dependence in, in Bethlehem the Bible tells us he's upholding the universe by the word of his power and on the cross the God of total power and authority with arms stretched out says, I am thirsty. 
and he can do nothing for himself. So, so he himself has entered into the experience of dependence, and yet, in no way is his dignity or his status touched by his dependence. And so we need to remember that, don't we? Because at some stage, each of us is going to face utter and total dependence, and yet in no way does it touch your dignity or your status as a beloved princess or prince of the Most High, uh, however dependent and vulnerable we are. Because Christ has gone before us. He was with us in the darkness of the womb, as he will be with us in the darkness of the tomb. So our humanity is not a barrier between us and God. No, it's the very means by which God chooses to reveal himself. So I've looked at this picture many times and I've thought to myself, where is God in that picture? Uh, is it, is, uh, am I the tiny little hand and God is the great big hand? Yes, very often that's how it feels for me. I'm desperately there clinging on to life and God is that great big hand who is supporting me. But you know, wonderfully, you can turn the picture around and the God of the universe chooses to turn himself into the little hand. He chooses to make himself vulnerable and fragile in order to reveal his glory in weakness. So, what does all this mean? Well, we have to defend the preciousness and the integrity of every human life. Why? Because this is the form in which God became flesh. This is, there is something special about human because this is the way that God choose, chose to reveal himself. Dependence, fragility, vulnerability, they're all part of creation design for human beings. I think we've got to resist this technological drive to improve on our own humanity, to master, to control, and say that actually, if this kind of humanity was good enough for Jesus, well then maybe it's good enough for us too. We don't need a new, enhanced Mark II version of Homo sapiens. And there's an enemy whose mission is to destroy, deface, and manipulate human beings. You know, I've come to the conclusion that the thing that the evil one hates above all else is the cross and everything that it stands for. But I suspect that the thing that the evil one hates after the cross, most of all, are human beings. Because human beings remind him every time. Every time he sees a human being, he's reminded of the prince and of the king. And the, and the evil one is, is devoted to stamping out this image, stamping out humanity. And sometimes he does it in a very obvious, ruthless way, as in ISIS and what's happening in Syria and so on. But sometimes it's in a much more subtle way. It's in this subtle way of, of thousands of abortions taking place across the world. It's through medical killing. It's through the twisting, the shaping, the abusing of humanity. And whenever as Christian people we say that something wrong, we must immediately say, and here is a better way. So it's finding ways of demonstrating the value, the preciousness, the significance of human life, both at the beginning and at the end. I've run out of time, so I haven't had time to talk about that. Delighted to take it further. Thank you so much for listening.